back once again to the Religious Studies Project. I'm David Robertson, and I'm here with... Ray Redford. Tell, tell them where we are, Ray. We are in a very, very smoky uh, Newcastle, New South Australia... New South Wales, Australia. New South Australia. God. <laughs> uh, it's been one of those days. I've been up since 5.30. You're doing well. Um, the Yeah, there's flakes of uh, ash coming down. Which is exciting because you might actually have a white Christmas this year. Fingers crossed. I mean, uh, fingers crossed that uh, half the state stops burning, but maybe white, white Christmas might be nice. It's, yes, it's not all plus, but uh, there is positives. This week, we have a podcast recorded by my good colleague, Christopher Cotter. And he is speaking to Stacey Gutkowski uh, about secular Jewish millennials in Israel and Palestine. So very timely and interesting. Take it away, Chris and Stacy. In the popular imaginary, Israel-Palestine is and has always been a contested territory associated with sacred sites, the Abrahamic religions, religion-related conflicts, and a volatile political climate. However, this unnuanced stereotype takes little account of the lived realities on the ground, particularly among the constituency at focus in today's podcast, a large group of around 860,000 secular millennials who have come of age during a phase of national conflict when some Palestinian and Israeli government leaders, and not just fringe figures, have utilized religio-ethnic symbols to motivate and divide. Today, I'm joined in Edinburgh by Dr. Stacey Gukowski to discuss what it means to be a secular Jewish-Israeli millennial. What insights might the study of religion and secularity gain from taking a closer look at this constituency? Does it even make sense to refer to them as a constituency? And how do they relate to Judaism, to Israel, to Palestine, and hopefully much more? And Dr. Gutkowski is a senior lecturer in conflict studies and co-director of the Centre for the Study of Divided Societies at King's College London. She's the author of Secular War, Myths of Religion, Politics and Violence, published in 2013, and has been co-director of the Non-Religion and Secularity Research Network, where I know her from, uh, since 2008. And today's interview touches on themes developed in her forthcoming book, Being Reasonable, question mark, Secular Selfhood and Israel's Post-Oslo Generation, which we published with Manchester University Press in 2020. So first off, Stacey, welcome to the Religious Studies Project. Thanks, Chris. Really happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Not at all. It's just wonderful that you're passing through Edinburgh. I couldn't not speak to you, really. Um, (laughs) So just first off, um, I mean, I know a bit about your research journey, but if you could just tell us a bit about and your, I guess, your academic background, your interests, and how you have ended up conducting this study on secular Jewish-Israeli millennials. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you very much. Um, Well, nowadays, I describe myself more as a political sociologist. Uh, My academic background is in philosophy, peace studies, and international relations. Um, And my main area of research has been uh, broadly in the area of religion, conflict, and peace building. And specifically, I've been interested in the relationship um, between violence and the secular. Um, My first book, um, which you introduced, uh, took a a Western case study looking at British foreign policy in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, And in the book, I, I introduced some theoretical questions that I 
thought I would then go on to explore over a series of, you know, mm-hmm. decades. And this was the next step kind of on, on that journey. Okay. Um, and my particular interest uh, in, in this book is to understand what it's like to be a person who's deeply embedded in religious tradition, but someone who distances themselves or claims to distance themselves from a religious tradition. What is it like to live through um, to live through violence? And Jewish Israelis, young secular Jewish Israeli millennials, um, were an interesting case because they have lived through um, a sort of intensive period of war, since a series of wars since they've uh, become young adults. Um, but also it's a hard case because they're not secular in a, in a Western sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really to provide myself with a hard case yeah. um, to try to, to push the theory further. Excellent. Um, yeah. yeah, and um, as listeners regular listeners to the RSP probably know in the study of secularity more broadly, um, I mean, everything tends to be quite sort of Western European, North American and everything. So, so the work in, um, in Israeli-Palestine context is, is really excellent. So hopefully this interview will really add to that. Um, so you've already hinted a little bit at there, I mean, who are these um, secular Jewish Israeli millennials and, and why they are interesting, but maybe if you just tell us, you, you, you hinted at some of their life experiences and why they might be interesting, but if you could just tell us a bit about the their sort of demographics and what makes them a group. I mean, millennials even might seem an obvious term to some, but if you can just, you know, get right down to the basics. Yeah, no, of course. Um, So I take the uh, the Pew definition of of millennials, so uh, born between 1980 and and 1995. Um, And then in terms of this population, um, not just millennials, but in the Israeli population overall, um, they're about 40% of the population. Um, and there are fuzzy boundaries in the kinds of um, Jewish practices they engage in um, in Israel between these Hiloni, uh, secular Jews, and Mesortim, the traditional Jews in Israel, um, because Jewish popular culture is, is pervasive. So um, unlike um, someone who identifies as maybe an agnostic or an atheist or secular um, in the UK, these are people who are, are more deeply uh, deeply embedded in tradition and, um, as Yaakov Yagar has argued, can't, can't avoid it. Mm. Um, as a group, they're, they're largely urban and, uh, and middle class. Um, uh, 66% are descended from um, Europeans. European migrants and 32 uh, percent, approximately, are from um, uh, Jews who are descendants um, of migrants from the uh, from the Arab world and, and from the Middle East. That is this group. And interestingly, um, there are continuities between older generations, but um, there are some important distinctions mm. um, as well. Yeah, which we'll be hearing about now. Um, this um, it seems to be an appropriate point to, th- to throw uh, perhaps quite a, a difficult question at you. Um, we, we opened up the, the interview to, to our listeners, um, and Lewis Frankenthaler um, came in with, well, it's basically about the, the, the whole notion of, I guess, secular Jew. I mean, it's quite a common turn of phrase, yet we don't really seem to say secular Christians so much, or secular Muslims, secular Buddhists, and so on. So um, I'll just sort of um, 
run through it a little bit. Um, you know, he says that all too often um, people ask if you can be Jewish and not believe in a God or God that is be an atheist Jew or a secular Jew. Um, and he, he says that he thinks that this is a misdirected question and um, wonders what your take on a more uh, substantial query that asks rather can you be Jewish and not believe in a deity but also but can you be Jewish and not do Judaism that is God is not really the issue and many would claim it does not God does not care if a Jew believes in God but only that you do what it is that this God supposedly claims uh, Jews to do so so basically not whether you can be uh, not, not whether a secular Jew is someone who doesn't believe in God but but uh, you know like what, what's the do you still have to practice something to be considered a Jew or is there something more inherent in that yeah no it's a it's a great question and thank you very much to to Lewis for asking it um, I mean this is an essential question that's really um, preoccupying Jews in Israel and and in the diaspora um, I guess as a good social scientist, the first thing I would say is people can be whatever they want to be, mm-hmm. and we take it seriously um, as as analysts. So certainly you see uh, in Israel and elsewhere people who um, reject um, strict or even partial observance of, of Jewish law, the halakha, who maybe claim they do it, but actually, you know, engage in, in certain practices or, or something in between. And then you have... Um, scenarios, for example, in, in Israel with people uh, who are migrants from the former Soviet Union who um, have become Orthodox Jews, um, but who are not considered as Jewish by the Orthodox rabbinate mm-hmm. uh, in Israel because they, they don't have a Jewish mother. They haven't had an Orthodox conversion. Um, so it's a, it's, a complicated, um, it's a complicated picture. In terms of, in terms of analytically, in Israel, it's a different case from the from the diaspora hmm. um, because it is a, a context in which Judaism is woven into the fabric of um, of public law and state life, and um, as Liebman says, as in um, in popular culture, um, and also in Israel, it's a it's a politicized identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and Yadgar talks about how the early founders um, of the state didn't, uh, couldn't find another way to uh, sort of mark citizenship, Israeli citizenship, um, other than through Jewish uh, religious identity and this, this particular um, way in which the Orthodox rabbinate decides who, who is Jewish, um, who is not. But then it creates, you know, when we think about it practically in people's everyday lives, we can say, yes, people who are um, determined to be Jewish by the Orthodox rabbinate uh, in Israel are embedded in Jewish popular culture. But so is everybody else who comes Mm -hmm. into Israel and ends up, um, you know, observing uh, or, you know, having the Shabbat as a weekend because that's the weekend um, in, in Israel. But I think... I think maybe what Lewis is is asking about more is that, you know overlooks not doesn't over, the, not the question itself but I, I think it's easy to overlook that while Judaism is a center of gravity for um, people in public life and private life in Israel it's not the only um, source of existential culture, of um, ideas about philosophical ideas about life and its meaning, and that there are other things that people borrow from 
Um, some of these are more, you know, perhaps well-known, such as uh, Buddhism or New Age practices. Um, but other things like Western philosophy are, I think, somewhat overlooked um, in, the, in the literature, as that these are all ways in which people make meaning in, the, in their lives. And mm. some of those forms of meaning come from Judaism, and some of them come from other things. Um, now it's a different, it's a different case for the diaspora, mm -hmm. um, where Jewish identity, um, in contradistinction to other forms of identity, particularly Arab identity is not, um, enforced by the, by the context, by the state, by the state context. Um, and then again, I would, you know, say going back to the social science observation mm. that it matters what people do and how they identify, mm. um, and, right, that, and how they are identified again as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and the terminology secular Jewish, um, in, in English, um, perhaps, you know, raises these, these, you know, analytical questions, but when we look at what people actually do, hmm. it's perhaps more, more clear. Absolutely. Hmm. And although I, I teed that up with things about, you know, we don't really say secular Christian and, and that sort of thing, but thinking about, you know, Abby Day and her work on the sort of not Christian nominalism and the sort of ethnic and, and familial aspects to that, thinking of my own Northern Irish context where mm -hmm. everything is, you know, so I'm from a Protestant background. Even if I converted to Catholicism, mm -hmm. I would still be considered a Protestant. I mean, yeah. that sort of mm -hmm. thing, you know, like, so there's all the, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and, and yes, being a secular Catholic or a secular Protestant probably does make a lot of sense in a Northern Irish context mm -hmm. in a way in which it mightn't make discursive sense in other places. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, so thanks for uh, attempting that uh, that potential curveball there. Um, so just jumping straight into um, into the book, and mm -hmm. um, so again, you've already hinted at some of your research questions, you know. But but what were you what were you hoping to to probe by engaging with this uh, large constituency? Well, um, there were two main research questions that um, that animated the book. Um, that ended up uh, working together and um, highlighting new things about each other and the way the question was set out as I as I went along. So I, I would say I had two working research questions, which were, were a starting point. Um, and the first was, um, I guess, more empirical. Uh, as a young secular Jew, secular in, I suppose, um, uh, scare quotes, what has it felt like coming of age during a phase of national conflict um, when some Palestinian and Israeli government leaders, not just sort of fringe figures, um, have used religio-ethnic symbols um, divisively? So mm -hmm. looking at that phenomenologically, what is it like to be a person coming of age uh, when religion um, has taken on new forms of mattering politically, mm -hmm. even though um, it has been... Um, uh, it has mattered politically uh, since before the, the founding of the State of Israel, and then particularly after the 1967 war. So that was one one question. And then the second set of questions, um, or the second question, as I, as I said earlier, was um, to use Israel as a hard case to kind of think about the think theoretically. And that question was, what do violent political conflicts look, um, and most importantly, feel like, 
to people who claim to distance themselves from the majority religious tradition in their given context, and yet are fundamentally embedded within it. And uh, although we don't want to spend too much time on the the, the methods, um, people will want to know how you went about it as well. Um, But unless, you know, the methods are really so exciting that you want to spend the rest of the interview talking about them, of course. No, no. (laughs) We can can go through it quickly. Um, So the the project took a a phenomenological approach. It's an Mm. interpretivist approach. Um, I did 50 interviews with self-identified Halani millennials. Um, for people who, who know the case, the point about self-identified, um, I also took into account that um, some people appeared who, you know, uh, then began to speak about their uh, religious practices and identities and um, turned out to be Masorti some days and Haloni some days. So some days they're traditional, some days they're secular. So um, took that into account uh, in the analysis and tried to take seriously what they say. Mm-hmm. Um, then I did. Uh, I also did 20 interviews um, with the, um, the transitional generation who are just older than them. Mm-hmm. These are people who were in their early 20s in the 1990s. Um, and then I interviewed um, millennials who are uh, traditionally Jewish, um, who are Orthodox, and then members of um, civil society, some of whom are, are also millennial. Um, there was a survey, over 90, uh, 90 millennials surveyed, in-depth survey. Um, and then for triangulation, it was um, uh, participant observation and field notes, mm-hmm. public opinion polls, um, various uh, public um, public reports, testimonies, media review. Um, yeah, so not much yeah. then, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it was a very, very quick project, as you can tell. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so based on that, um, that uh, large body of data and, and what we assume is your thorough analysis of it, um, what, um, let's just uh, dive into some of your... Uh, what did you find? Okay. <laughs> What's going on? Just, just a few things. <laughs> um, I guess maybe I'll, I'll talk a little bit first about um, what I found for this um, this generation um, in terms of um, Hilonim as a, as a religio class. Okay. Because um, I, I think of them as not as just a religious sector, um, but as a, a an elite middle class um, group, which is also... Um, has this um, dimension of religious identity and practice. One of the things that's that's interesting about this group is that they came of age um, during what um, scholars have called the religionization of um, Jewish-Israeli society. Um, now, scholars have have called have defined this in in different ways, and some talk about this as the religionization of politics, that um, orthodox and traditional views of, for example, the land and what the state of Israel should look like as the Jewish state, um, that these things have become more prominent over a secular socialist version of Zionism. Um, and while that while that is the case, I'm also thinking um, in terms of um, what is called hadata, the sort of intensification of Jewish practice, mm-hmm. that people would uh, begin to maybe um, just practice a little bit more, do a little bit more marginally than they relatively would in terms of, for example, holiday celebrations um, with family. 
Um, so this is something that they have, have come of age in the middle of. They've also come of age in the middle of a sort of a revival of people thinking about um, what it is to be a secular Jew. Um, of secular Jews uh, becoming uh, becoming Orthodox, and of different forms of Judaism, conservative Judaism, Reform, um, revisionist Judaism, um, becoming marginally more um, more popular um, with uh, North American migration to to Israel. So they come of age in the middle of this, mm-hmm. um, but in terms of um, in terms of identity, there are no um, sort of marked differences, uh, as far as I can tell, with uh, the transitional generation. Um, in terms of practice, um, what's, I guess, interesting is that millennials don't see this as an intensification. Right, because they've come of age in the middle of it, so yeah. you don't see it. You don't mm-hmm. see it because you're in it. Um, so they think it's unremarkable. Um, and people who are a bit older, you know, talk about this massive shift um, in Israeli uh, Jewish Israeli public life um, since since um, the 1980s. There, in terms of in terms of the class aspect of this. What was quite noteworthy is the the presence of um, Mizrahi middle class millennials who would identify with the term Haloni, and not simply because of this Zionist binary creation between you know secular and religious Jews, but actually because something the term means something to them mm-hmm. um, either. Um, in terms of politics or economics or class aspirations, um, so this the, this class looks somewhat different than it did um, because you have this group, you have new entrants, the migrants from the former um, Soviet Union, um, and these have changed sort of what the class looks like. Um, obviously, I mean I'm just sort of following your lead here, but um, um, this. This group um, is a major element in in Israel Palestine is obviously Palestine and Palestinians and so, so what about um, Israeli millennials and their, and their relations um, their constructions of Palestine and Palestinians and, and the whole uh, conflict mm-hmm. issue thing yeah absolutely <laughs> um, so they're not they're not politically unique in that they stand out from the rest of the population. Mm. Their, their political opinions on uh, the Palestinians and, uh, and on occupation have, you know, sort of followed the general trends along with the Jewish-Israeli population. Um, but there are two things that politically are distinctive in terms of their, um, their experience with, with Palestinians. Um, one is um, separation policy following the end of um, the Second Intifada uh, with the building of, of the separation barrier um, mm. in the West Bank uh, and and East Jerusalem. Um, it's not as though previous generations had necess- of this group had necessarily lived in close contact with Palestinians. Um, but scholars have found that this has had an impact socially and, and psychologically um, on um, being able to imagine the other. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's distinctive about this this generation in terms of the, the Palestinians um, is the sheer number of, uh, of wars 
and repeated uh, repeated wars. Um, uh, so for this uh, for this group, um, the exceptions being the oldest and the youngest, but we can think of the core of this group of having um, served in the disengagement, withdrawing uh, Israeli settlements from Gaza. Um, then, then serving uh, in 2006, 2008, 2011, 12, and 2014. Um, not to mention the 2006 uh, war in Lebanon. Um, so the uh, sort of the the level of violent contact is mm. quite distinct. Um, and then a couple of other things that are, are distinct um, have been the electoral success of center right um, political parties, including religious parties. Um, and then also debates between 2011 and 18 about the um, the uh, the basic law, the the constitutional arrangements of the state of Israel, and um, the the ethnic framing of um, of the state. So these are these are things have, mm-hmm. that have, um, while the religious experiences are somewhat different. Mm-hmm. The political experience is quite different from people who were in their 20s during the Oslo peace process, mm-hmm. because this is the constituency that was the backbone of, of the peace movement, supportive of, um, supportive of the Oslo process. Um, so there's been a gradual shift politically to the, um, to the center, relatively to the right among this group. Uh, in the recent election, we see um, uh, sort of, you know, potentially, potentially another, um, another shift, at least, uh, in, in terms of political government, uh, leadership. Um, so this is, they're quite different from, uh, the transitional generation. Um, we're already at 25 minutes here, which is, which is time running on. We can run on a little bit, of okay. course, but, um, <laughs> we, we can, um, one of the main arguments in your book is this concept of, you call it, um, neo-romanticism as a sort of characterizing feature um, for the Holonies. So um, what's going on there? What are you meaning by neo-romanticism? Absolutely. I mean, this came out of, you know, a grounded approach at needing to look at, okay, what was, what was happening across quite a diverse group of people um, interviewed um, politically diverse from right to center to left, geographically diverse, diverse in terms of um, gender and, and other characteristics. And when I was looking at the material and trying to draw out, okay, what was what united this group? There were a couple of things that, that really united them. And one of them was this emphasis on personal experience. Now, certainly in the media and um, in in public life, there's a lot of discussion that Jewish Israeli millennials are um, maybe a bit individualistic, selfish, that this is a product of the shift to a capitalist economy in Israel in, mm. in the 1980s. And yeah, I saw, I saw that. But there seemed to be something um, going on as well about the idea of emotion and, and personal experience being very important. And that was what something that people referred to repeatedly. Um, of about using their personal experience to navigate the world. Um, and another feature that came out that was important was there was, yes, there was individualism, but then there was also a great deal of sort of attachment, not to the state per se as a political entity, but to Jewish people and not 
you know, they reference this sort of Zionist discourse about the Jewish people, but for them, it was specifically the Jewish people they know, mm-hmm. their friends, um, their family. So this kind of dialectic between individual and collective. And then I needed to account for this this po- political diversity. Why was it that the emotional ecology and the way people um, talked about themselves, talked about the conflict, the occupation, Palestinians, politics, life in general, how could, you know, why was there something, there was a thread that underpinned all of that? Why? And so... I started to think a bit more um, about Talal Assad's use of um, Stefan Kalini's idea of romanticism and what Assad has to say about romanticism as a, as a secular but also spiritual movement. Um, now, of course, um, romanticism um, was an, uh, a feature of the, um, the European um, Jewish experience during, during the Haskalah. Um, Litvak's book on this is, is very interesting. Um, and also 19th century romanticism informed um, political Zionism. And I'm, mm. I'm not saying that there's, you know, I'm not trying to draw these direct historical um, connections. I'm, I'm more kind of inspired by Assad's use of use mm-hmm. of this. And so I, I talk about that as the Halani habitus developed from the 19th century onwards, that it always had these kind of different strands to it. Um, one romantic and one, um, one rationalist. And that this romantic strand is really important. And it's not obvious because when you, you speak to people, um, they will tell you that, you know, they're, they're heavily, they're heavily rationalist. Mm-hmm. And then you probe further and they're heavily emotional. And so I, I liked this idea of romanticism and I called it neo-romanticism to set it apart to say that I'm not drawing a connect, uh, a clear line with the 19th century to talk about this emphasis on personal experience. Um, Kalini says that for the 19th century romantics, um, individual and collective didn't contradict one another. And he also says that 19th century romanticism was neither explicitly politically conservative or progressive. Mm -hmm. It made possible um, different kinds of politics. Mm -hmm. And this, I thought, was a good way of talking, um, talking about what's happening among, among this group, that lived experience is important that there is something happening in terms of the role of emotion and also um, religious and and spiritual and philosophical effervescence. These things are in motion um, in Israel, uh, not just with New Ageism and secular renewal and the impact of Mizrahi Renaissance on popular culture, but there's there's something there. Um, so these narratives about you know being reasonable and being rationalist need to be unpicked. Um, and I thought it accounted for this this sort of tension between in the individual and the collective. And what I say is neo-romanticism is a kind of um, neo-republican citizenship. So what's talked about in the literature and uh, in the Jewish-Israeli media is that that liberalism and republicanism, Zionist republicanism, care for the state is somehow juxtaposed. I'm like, no, these things are working together. Um, that, that this, that this group, yeah, there may be, you know, absolutely. There are people who are very, very liberal and individualistic and, and leave the state, but, um, it would be a a mistake to miss, Mm -hmm. um, the ways in which they are, um, sort of bound, bound to the state as well. So I'm going to ask you two more questions. 
Um, one is going to be the why does this matter? So this you've just painted there this sort of neo romantic thread that's uniting this seemingly potentially disparate group. But like I think in, in the book you draw some of the, 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 the implications of this sort of politically, and then and I'm also interested in maybe like why should we care about it? So in religious studies, you know, what difference does it make to me? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, two very very big <laughs> questions. Let me start with <laughs> let me start with the with the first one. Why does it um, why does it matter um, politically? There are a lot of reasons why the state of uh, the political situation between Palestinians and Jewish Israelis is is what it is at the moment, mm-hmm. having to do with um, uh, with violence, with the election of uh, particular leaders on uh, both sides. Um, by strategic um, decisions um, made not to continue with um, not to continue um, with negotiations after um, after 2014. And in what I'm what I'm saying is that in the context of um, what critical geographers call the the national atmosphere, mm-hmm. that it's also important to look at look at what's happening in terms of of lived habitus and how people think about think about themselves. And what I found was that people, regardless of where they were on the political spectrum, were united in in thinking of themselves as what I call fulcrum citizens, um, balancing out uh, extremes, both um, extremes on the right, extremes on the left, extre- you know, Jewish-Israeli extremes, Palestinian extremes, um, what they see as extremist um, internationally in Europe. That they see themselves as 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 balancing people, and that they see this related to their uh, their haloniness, their religio class um, habitus, um, but that they're also shaped by their, for this generation, in a Jewish centric experience um, after after the failure of Oslo. So I, I say that this is this is part of the mix in understanding. The ongoing conflict and continuing um, continuing occupation. It's one of many different factors, mm-hmm. um, but I don't think it's yet been um, particularly brought to the fore. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I I want to say about that. Excellent. And how about um, for someone not in the study of Israel Palestine, um, perhaps? Not even in the study of the secular and that sort of thing. I mean, I mean, what what do you think is the sort of import of that? The big takeaway for for religious <laughs> studies. Um, when I got to the when I got to the end of the book and I revisited these um, I revisited these questions. The one thing that stood out for me was the importance of of studying the individual level and of studying gradations of emotional attachment to religious identities, Mm -hmm. symbols, spaces. In Brubaker's work in in 2015, uh, he, he, he points to this about the importance of studying, um, of studying the individual level. And, um, but I don't think that we yet in the fields are particularly good at, at doing that. And yet we, claim to study 
ethno-religious conflict or religio-ethnic mm-hmm. conflict and, and the inter and the intersection of the two. And it's not simply, you know, insert identity and everyone's going to feel the same way. And we know, you know, we know that that's a, you know, kind of a, um, something we know, we know practically. But I thought that this was, this was an area that could be, um, could be further advanced. And I, you know, I talk about it a bit, um, at, at the end of the book of about where I think we could go, um, and particularly thinking about studying political conflict with an ethno-religious dimension beyond identity. So that was one thing I wanted to do in the book was um, there's a chapter on space and there's a chapter on epistemology and to try to move into new directions. Excellent. Begging the forgiveness of Helen, who will be transcribing this, I did say if we had time, I'd mention um, another theme, which is like sacred space. Um, and how that came up in the book. Um, so if you can, maybe, you know, like, what would you have wanted to say in, like, 30 seconds <laughs> that um, you haven't got to say? No, that's okay. <laughs> it, it attaches to the other thing. Yeah. I mean, again, this is um, related to the point about uh, the literature, uh, I think, needs to not presume emotional attachment to, to sacred um, space and that needs to drill down into people's individual um, feelings about a sacred space, because just because people have a ethno-religious identity, they may not particularly care about that place. But at the same time, just because they claim to don't, they claim they don't care, does not mean that they actually do not. Exactly. Yeah. And so it makes ideas around compromising and sharing sacred space complicated. And I, I looked at the Haram al Sharif uh, Temple Mountain and attitudes to that in the book. Fantastic. Yes, so listeners, if you want to find out more about that, um, do you, when in 2020 are we expecting this, or, or do we, we not want to say a month yet? Hopefully soon. Hopefully soon. Um, so that book is going to be Being Reasonable, question mark, <laughs> Secular Self-Food and Israel's Post-Oslo Generation. Stacey Gukowski, um, we hope our listeners will read that book and um, shout widely about it, but um, if they don't, They've heard an excellent interview today. And thank you so much. Thank you so much. Fascinating podcast uh, about an issue I don't know an awful lot about that is obviously very uh, timely and important global issue right now. Um, shall we talk a little bit about the conference that we're at just now? We should. Uh, we are at the AASR, the Australian Academy for the Study of Religion. Um, it's my second. I don't know why I didn't come last year. Oh yeah, because I was in your neck of the woods last yes, year. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a uh, day one or day two technically. We had a, uh, a HDR day yesterday for the PhD students mm-hmm. and a couple of keynote lectures. I think Naomi Goldenberg gave one. She um, gave a she gave a keynote this morning. Yesterday was a workshop. A workshop. That's the uh, on introducing kind of critical. Uh, methodologies. Uh, the uh, the weather is holding up. It's not raining, but as we mentioned earlier, it's uh, smoky. So very smoky. <laughs> <laughs> it's a well, it's a great pleasure for me to be here because we've had so many Australian contributors and editors to the RSP over the year. Um, yourself and Bree at the moment, of course, but um, and Venetia Robertson. I think. Yeah, with you being here is now the the highest contingent of RSP contributors in one place. If Bree was here, it'd be a 
even higher. I it think. would be, yeah. Because um, uh, Tara and Ben, who I had did the podcast with, are upstairs. Oh, that's right. Um, yeah. yeah, Venetia, Carol, yourself, and, and me. Yeah, Carol Cusack, who's one of our uh, board members, in fact, mm. of the of the religious studies project. The the charity that we mm. that runs the thing. So yeah, very exciting. I don't know if Brianne's maybe recording tomorrow, but we'll certainly have some podcasts coming out of the conference, even if we don't um, record them at the conference itself. Uh, but that's for next year. Um, we've got two more podcasts this year, and uh, Ray and I are recording these intros just now. Next week is um, Applied Religious Studies at Georgia State University. That's um, Dave McConaughey talking to Molly Barrett um, about their program um, at, at uh, Georgia State University and um, the way that they are trying to innovate and professionalize uh, religious studies degree programs. Um, you're going to hear quite a lot about these kind of issues coming up in the RSP in the next year or two. As it's something that Dave's very interested in, but it's also something that's vitally important to the discipline in establishing ourselves as something that's kind of <laughs> worthwhile yeah. for people to do. Yeah. It's actually um, something I'm quite excited to, to hear, uh, mainly because it's the sort of thing that I really would like undergrads to hear, um, to, to give them the, the credence that this is definitely a worthwhile endeavor. Um, not just in Australia, but around the world. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and applicable more broadly than just uh, you know having theological conversations or something. That this is something which is more broadly applicable um, in professional contexts. Talking of professional context, this is very much an unprofessional <laughs> context. We're sitting in a room and. Uh, improvising our way through these intros, so maybe it's time that we get out before we embarrass ourselves. <laughs> Someone walks in and goes, are you two talking to yourselves? <laughs> yes. Are you supposed to be here? Um, so what we'll do is we'll just say, thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening. The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation charity number, SC047750. Brought to you by editors Brianne Fallon and David McConaughey, and finding editors Chris Cotter, that's me, and David Robertson, that's him. Our features are edited by Rebecca Barrett-Fox with marketing managed by Benjamin Marcus. Our Opportunities Digest managed by Ella Bach, podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock and social media managed by Ray Radford. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com, .co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com backslash project RS. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, iTunes and other portals. Thanks for listening.